welcome. Uh, welcome back. Uh, this is Dr. Michael Egner from Mind Matters News. I'm, int I'm interviewing Dr. Andrew Newberg, uh, who is a pioneer and uh, authority uh, in the field of neurotheology. He studies uh, brain activity uh, in the context of spiritual experiences. Uh, welcome again, Andrew. Thank you. Uh, just, I, one thing we had spoken about a little bit in the last segment, which which uh, you mentioned, which I, is, is absolutely fascinating, is the impression that people have when they have spiritual experiences that there is a a greater reality to the ex, to the spiritual experience than there is to their ordinary waking life, uh, and that that's that's a hallmark. Uh, in 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 many situations people can't even find words for it uh and uh many of, of the great mystics have uh, have made it clear that they can't really describe what they what they experience but that what they experience is more real than anything they can describe and people who have near-death experiences uh, very often say that that what they experienced was was far beyond and if you think about it, the near-death experience, if indeed it is associated with a um, with a lack of, of activity in the brain, um, is an extreme example of what uh, Thomas Aquinas or even Aristotle would say uh, is an immaterial experience of the mind. It's an experience of, of the mind that is that is not material. That doesn't come from from the brain. Right. So a, a, an absolutely fat, fascinating insight. Well, and you know the the study of near death experiences does you know here's where you know a kind of neurotheological approach could have some really powerful uh, you know paradigm shifting implications. And um, a, a colleague of mine um, has actually been trying to do some more formal research looking at these uh, experiences that you know. Uh, Obviously, as you mentioned, I mean they, they they tend to occur when people are near to death. Uh, obviously, the name, and so um, you know the idea of trying to corroborate what are you know well known you know probably thousands of anecdotal stories of people describing the room, uh, describing maybe a patient in another room. Uh, you know, if we can really try to validate that scientifically, that could be quite fascinating. And you know, there there are. Uh, fairly elegant ways of designing a, a pretty simple study where, uh, you know, if we go to trauma bays, if we go to, you know, cardiac areas where we know that there's a high likelihood of people who will be close to death uh, and then find out, you know, who has, who that happened to, uh, find out who may have had a near-death experience and then, you know, be able to challenge them by asking them specific questions, maybe having certain things in the room, you know, like uh, one one thought has been to have like a shelf above a bed uh, with some kind of picture on the other side. Um, so, you know, like a picture of the Eiffel Tower or something like that. And of course, if they said, you know, I, I died, I floated up to the ceiling and then I saw this picture of the Eiffel Tower, you know, like th that could go an incredible long way of of trying to prove that, you know, that there is this immaterial soul consciousness, whatever that goes beyond uh, what the physical body is able to do. And so, you know, there, you know, if we're creative about how we think about some of these studies, there could be some really fascinating opportunities to expand the way we really do think about uh, the world, the way we think about ourselves, uh, and how we understand ourselves. You know, cognitive neuroscience, as you were sort of alluding to earlier, I mean, is kind of trapped in this very materialistic perspective, which, you know, I can appreciate. And, and there's certainly a value to thinking about things that way and, and 
you know, I know with your background, I mean, obviously, you know, d- doing surgery on the brain and, and, and helping to quote unquote fix people who have brains that are, you know, uh, with Parkinson's or, or Alzheimer's or a stroke or something like that can be, you know, absolutely essential to helping people. But, but that doesn't mean that that's all we are. And, um, and, and trying to find that other part of ourselves, there, there may be some really intriguing ways of trying to do that. When I began, um, when I was interested in uh, neurology and neurosurgery as a medical student, and, and you know, and subsequently in my career, I um, initially thought that I would gain a very deep insight into into the soul, into what it meant to be human, by studying the brain. Um, and I've come to realize that that um, there's much about us that doesn't show up in the brain. Uh, and that the brain is an organ like any other, and it's, it's an organ that allows us to perceive, uh, allows us to remember and to move and do things like that and to have emotions, but that there's a very large part of human experience that doesn't seem to come from the brain. Right. Um, the brain's involved in it, but it doesn't come from it, uh, and I've become passionately convinced of that. And that's one mm. of the reasons why I've embraced Thomistic psychology is that I think St. Thomas had had the, the explanation that best fits what I've seen uh, in 35 years. Mm. And, you know, even one of the things that I challenge my students on, would, even if one takes a very materialistic perspective, you know, I mean, this is, it becomes, I guess, in, you know, in the world of consciousness studies, the hard problem of where does consciousness actually come from? And, and I say, well, you know, look, I mean, if you take a materialist perspective, you've got sodium and potassium ions rushing across a, 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 the nerve membrane, you've got, you know, blood flow, you've got metabolism, you've got electrical activity, you've got neurotransmitters crossing synapses. So where in all of that is our thought, you know, where in all of that is our consciousness, and and how does how does one understand that? And and it's really, I mean, obviously, it's a it's a, a, fan, a fantastic mystery. Um, but but that's where also where I, I guess you know I personally feel that just taking a scientific perspective obviously becomes limited based on what we were just talking about. Um, having you know only a kind of philosophical or theological approach may miss the biological piece of it, and so you know that's where I kind of keep coming from in terms of maybe this kind of integrated approach that looks at finding pieces of both, you know, the science as well as the the spiritual, you know, does that, can that push us down the path a little bit more in a way that we've never been able to do before? I, I don't know if that will, will ultimately lead to the answers, but, but I, I, you know, at some point I feel like you know, there there is so, there is something about trying to find how the the material and the immaterial work together, um, and, and and without being you know dualistic, and you know uh, maybe it even has a sort of um, uh, you know analogy to like the quantum mechanics of you know. Uh, we, we, uh, my late colleague, Gene DeQuilly and I wrote an article called consciousness in the machine. And we kind of argued that ultimately, you know, the brain and consciousness are sort of like two ways of looking at the same thing. Sure. And, um, much like, you know, looking at a particle and a wave or it's like two ways of looking at the same thing. So, and now I'm not saying that we're relying on quantum mechanics to, to answer that, but, but that, that sort of analogy of, you know, maybe we tend to say, you know, maybe when we look for you know, if I do a brain scan, I will find a brain change, you know, and if I look for the experience, I will find the experience. And so maybe they are different ways of just kind of looking at the same thing. But, I, you know, again, th- these are the kinds of challenging questions for us to to pursue and, and to look at where we can take the science and where we can take our our contemplative uh, processes to, to help us elucidate an answer to those questions. 
the positive uh, experiences, spiritual experiences that you've described uh, are absolutely fascinating. There, there, there are, however, quite a few negative spiritual yes. experiences that people have. Um, uh, anything from uh, you know losing one's faith to um, to sin, uh, even to you know demonic possession, things like that. Have you ever or have you had a chance to study that, or is that something that you would like to study? Well, definitely something I would love to study. Uh, you know, we, we have definitely thought about it uh, in our survey. We certainly found that you know while. 95% of people, uh, you know, it's an overwhelmingly positive experience. There is that small percentage of, of several percent, 5% or whatever, who have experiences that are negative. And of course, as you mentioned, I mean, then there's even sort of the more obvious, uh, you know, joining cults, uh, terrorists, uh, you know, what is it about, uh, you know, going to the ISIS website and saying, gee, you know, like, this sounds good, you know, like, <laughs> let's, let's blow right. people up. Um, so, uh, and, and of course, you know, every, every tradition has had their, had their violent tendencies at times. So, um, you know, what is it that, uh, leads people in, in down those, uh, very dark pathways? And, and you even mentioned the other one, and again, I'm sure, you know, you've dealt with this in your own practice in one way or another that, you know, I'm fascinated by the fact that when people are struck with some tragedy in their own life, the loss of a child or something like that, some people turn towards God as a way of, you know, God's going to help me through this and, and my religion. Religious and, and spiritual faith are going to be what helps you know to to cope and, and manage through this. While other people say, "How could God do this to me?" and they turn away from God. Um, sure. And and that's again, you know, on, on a more practical. I mean, on one hand, I think neurotheology has an interesting opportunity to help us understand those distinctions. What is it? You know, what goes on in the brain of somebody who feels like joining a cult is the right thing, versus somebody who feels like you know just being a, a religious individual who wants to improve the world and so forth. You know, what what are the differences? Is there, but also there may be some interesting opportunities, you know, on a more kind of, uh, I guess, therapeutic perspective, if you will, to say, you know, what are the things that are going on that lead somebody down that darker path, that negative path, and and can we actually help to understand that so that we can find more effective ways of you know redirecting people into something that is more positive and more constructive? And you know, there's been a lot of work uh, over the last uh, couple of decades, you know, taking people with for example, depression, and recognizing that there could be a spiritual component to that as well, and that uh, you know, incorporating religious or spiritual concepts into more traditional psychotherapeutic interventions could actually be very helpful for the right person. I mean, obviously, if the person is a very devout atheist, then maybe not. But but for someone who has a rich religious background, you know, helping them to engage that in a way that might ultimately be therapeutically effective could actually be very beneficial for somebody as well. So so there's again, you know, there's sort of this you know ranging all the way from the esoteric of well, what does this dark side, you know, dark night of the soul actually mean and 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 what is what might it look like to um, you know understanding uh, the nature of people who are engaged in these negative aspects of religion and spiritual beliefs to you know more practical ways of helping people uh, work through them and and help them to to become you know uh, healthier you know, develop a you know a better um, a sense of well being and and health and in fact uh, the most recent book that we wrote called Brain Weaver you know talks about the, that spiritual side of ourselves and how valuable that is and and necessary it is for us to have our overall health and well being I mean we have to eat well we have to exercise we have to you know do all the other things that that take care and nourish the body but but the spiritual side of ourselves are, are are fundamental as well. In the the ongoing uh, debate between theists and atheists, it's not uncommon for um, 
the respective sides to trade uh, accusations of mental illness. That is, that uh, atheists will say that theists are, are basically just you know marginal psychotics who are imagining gods there and so on. Theists will say that atheists are sort of autistic with with respect to God and so on. Right. Do you find any um, correspondence between the um, brain activity in people who are either theist or or atheist? With uh, genuine um, uh, neurological disorders like schizophrenia or like autism. Well, you know, I, I think I think the you know to me at the moment, and and while um, you know it, it's always hard to look at a given individual. Uh, usually, we're sort of looking at populations, but um, but there have been some interesting studies that have looked at these kinds of questions and. I'll give you one example. This was not one a study that I did, but um, but I thought you know I think may shed some interesting light on your question, which is that you know there there were a number of studies that were designed to try to help to show that uh, and th- these were people who had some obvious biases against religion that um, that people who were religious were you know not as intellectually smart or weren't as good at sol- problem, solving problems and things like that, um, and they would have them do these different syllogisms or logical problems or whatever. Um, and somebody got very clever and they said, well, you know, maybe it has to do with the nature of how the questions are, are portrayed and worded. And what they what they did, there was this nice little study that was done where they took religious individuals and non-religious individuals, and they had them solve these different logical problems. And they had some logical problems that were more positive to religion, for lack of a better way of saying it, and some that were more negative you know, towards religion. And what was interesting was, was that the people who were religious did really well on the on the logical problems that were positive towards religion, but didn't do as well on the ones that were negative. And the atheists, it was just the opposite. So it wasn't like they did, you know, it wasn't like their their overall logic was better or worse, but it operated in different kinds of ways. And um, another interesting example was that um, they did a study of of religious believers and non-believers, and they showed them um, pictures that had been blurred, um, so almost like a Rorschach kind of thing, but but they were actual pictures. And what they found was was that people who were religious were more likely to see things in the picture that were not there, uh, you know, were not originally there in the picture, but you know, didn't miss things. On the other hand, the atheist didn't see things, you know, never saw something that wasn't there, but sometimes didn't see things that actually were there. And so my take on a lot of this information is that uh, I feel that, you know, that the idea of, of, of sort of how we look at the world and how we are biased to look at the world in one way or another is very much is how we sort of shape the beliefs that we ultimately hold. So it's not that one side, you know, has a mental disorder or, or the other side has, a, you know, a different kind of mental disorder, but that, you know, there, there are different ways in which we look at the world. And then that leads us down different paths of thinking about the world one way or another. Um, same can be said of Republicans and Democrats, or even just, you know, in, in academics. I mean, some people are really good in mathematics and science and others are good in the humanities. It's not that one person is better or worse or right or wrong. It's just that they just look at the world differently. And we talked about this a lot in the Why We Believe What We Believe book that, that um, you know, to us, it seems extremely hard to say that, uh, you know, people who have, who are deeply religious, you know, have psychoses or delusions or whatever, because there's just no, I mean, yes, of course there are some people who do, um, but uh, just as there's atheists who do, um, but that, you know, for, by and large, I mean, you know, 
these individuals are highly functional. And I mean, I, I going back, I, I think I mentioned earlier, you know, this, this study we did of speaking people speaking in tongues when they were speaking in tongues. I mean, they looked completely psychotic and crazy and all that. And then five minutes later, they're totally fine. And these are all people who have jobs, have families, you know, I mean, they're totally normal in society, but they get into this state that is just, you know, so fascinating and unusual. What goes on in the, in their brains when they're speaking in tongues? Well, when there's, I mean, so uh, that was one of the first times where we saw that frontal lobe activity actually decrease. Um, and so, you know, because they talk about the them not, you know, they say that they are not making it happen, um, that it is something that is happening to them. In fact, uh, I had this little funny interchange with one of the first people who did the study. And I said, okay, you know, for the first state, you are going to uh, speak in English. And then in the second state, you are going to speak in tongues. And they corrected me and they said, no, 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 that's not how it works. They said, you know, I can only get myself into a state in which it might happen. Um, I'm not making it happen. And so uh, we tended to see the frontal lobes decrease in those individuals who were speaking in tongues. And what, what was the was the decrease in the speech area? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, in the in the both in the in the larger frontal lobe as well as in in Broca's area about the production of speech. So then the question is, so what exactly? Is making those sounds. That's, I mean, um, that's 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 astonishing. I mean, yeah. that's, and, it, and it, it, it's 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 very consistent with with as you pointed out with the Christian understanding of what speaking in tongues is. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, that's 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 absolutely fascinating. But it also speaks to the fact that this is a person who is able to enter into a state and then be back in sort of an you know the everyday reality state. And so you know, the, I don't believe that these individuals meet any kind of criteria for you know, psychosis, you know, I mean, they're, they're, they're completely normal otherwise. And, and, and some of them I knew very well, <laughs> they were wonderful people. Yeah. I've, I've, I've known people who do that. They're, oh, yeah. they're, yeah. they're very sane yeah. people. But by the same token, let me just flip the question around. I mean, the, that there are relationships between, you know, there, there are schizophrenics who believe that they are the Messiah, that there are people who have temporal lobe epilepsy who have unusual, that's interesting and important as well for us to look at because there is a relationship um, in, at, in certain circumstances. And does that tell us something about, you know, how does the brain work? I personally believe that schizophrenia is the most interesting disease in medicine. Um, it's, it's also one of the most tragic. Uh, yeah. it, 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 it robs a person of, 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 of so much of their life. Oh, but, absolutely. Um, it's absolutely fascinating. And I, I have this feeling, I don't know if you share it, that we have not scratched the surface. You know, we, we, we have drugs that will cover up some of the symptoms, but we don't know what's going on. No, absolutely. Do, do you feel, does your work give you any insight into, into mental illness? Is that something that you've been able to address? Well, I mean, a lot of my more traditional work, um, you know, with imaging has looked at, you know, a variety of different neurological and psychiatric conditions. We have studied, you know, people with, uh, you know, head injury. We've studied people with depression. We've studied people with Alzheimer's, Parkinson's and so forth. And, you know, so there are certainly overall, you know, changes that are seen in the brains of these individuals and and some are more uniform like alzheimer's tends to have certain specific patterns but as you mentioned i mean some of the other ones like schizophrenia which just can be so heterogeneous in terms of what the symptoms are and how they affect people uh really hard to get a handle on and um uh, and as you said i mean part of it is is that we know that um 
that you know it, it, you can give a, a drug that kind of blankets the brain in a certain way and maybe calms them down or something like that. But it's not fixing the fundamentals of who they are and, and whether various combination of spiritual practices and meditation and uh, and diet and nutrition and the right medications. You know, I we you know, we don't know. We really don't know um, what the what these individuals uh, are going through and and how their brain is actually operating, but. Uh, you know, we again, we we talk about this a lot in in our Brainweaver book about you know how does how do we try to maintain a brain as healthy as possible? But once you get into some of these more severe conditions, it is very challenging to know how best to to manage them. And and uh, you know, we we just have to keep looking at uh, at how I mean how incredibly complex the brain is, and and trying our best to understand it and figuring out the best ways of trying to help people manage it in, in effective ways. It's wonderful work, Andrew. And uh, the uh, as 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 you may know, I've 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 had some reservations about neurotheology as as a field because I'm I've I'm afraid that purely a kind of ideologically materialist perspective will arise from this kind of research. But right. it certainly seems from 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 our discussion and from your work that. Um, you're doing it in a way that really is trying to get at the truth, uh, and that's 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 a, that's that's a wonderful thing, and it's a fascinating topic. Oh well, thank you, and and I and I share your concerns too, and that's you know I've I've tried to point that out with people when they're when they're heading down paths that are are not necessarily you know the most effective answers to the questions. They have to be careful about you know what any of these studies mean, um, sure. you know. Uh, and I know we're getting close to the end, but you know, even studies where people take different substances like psychedelics, and it, they have these experience. You know, we we have this Western perspective of then that they're artificial and they're created by this drug. But you know, for for shamans throughout the centuries and millennia, it's it's the doorway to open the brain to that other world, that other realm. And you know, again, I I don't know, you know, what what's really going on, but. But we have to really pay attention to all the different perspectives that come out of this results. And there's there's a tendency, I I, I think, in, in, in scientism in general, and, and and neuroscience has some of it too. Yeah. To uh, label experiences that people have as necessarily being purely pathological, purely ex- explainable in mundane ways, and and that really isn't necessarily uh, even even a scientific way of looking at it because right there have been millions of people who've had experiences like this exactly and to just dismiss them all as being just on drugs or crazy or something isn't really scientific either (laughs) exactly exactly completely agree (laughs) well i am uh, very grateful uh, for for your time it's been a wonderful discussion and um, I, I would like to do this again. So any any time you'd great. like to come back, we we would love love to have you. And uh, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks. Uh, this has been Andrew Newberg. Uh, he is a uh, pioneer in the field of neurotheology. Uh, I'm Mike Egner from Mind Matters News, and thank you for listening. This has been Mind Matters News. Explore more at mindmatters.ai. That's mindmatters.ai. Mind Matters News is directed and edited by Austin Egbert. The opinions expressed on this program are solely those of the speakers. Mind Matters News is produced and copyrighted by the Walter Bradley Center for Natural and Artificial Intelligence at Discovery Institute.